Why do you love Mount Airy? I, I bet if we had the time, we take the time, go around the room and ask that question and let you answer it, I bet your answers would sound a lot like the answers we just heard on the video. It's the people. So, so this, this morning, we're going to focus on why we love Mount Airy, and throughout the month of April, we're going to be looking at this new series simply called, I Love Mount Airy. Now, a couple of months ago, I asked our staff that same question as we were planning for this series. I asked them, why do you love Mount Airy? And so I just went to a whiteboard and I started writing down their answers. They didn't know why I was asking. They didn't know uh, yet about everything about this series. But I said, why do you love Mount Airy? And, and here's what they said. Uh, I didn't put names with these, but one of the staff members said, I love Mount Airy because of the unity and the fellowship. Another said, because of the family atmosphere. Another said, uh, opportunities to make a difference. Uh, another said the heart of the people, and the other, another person said uh, because of your desire uh, to, to learn the Bible. Now, do you see anything missing on that list? Don't go to that one yet, please. Go back. Do you see anything missing on that list? Nobody said because of the pastor's sermons. <laughs> Nobody. These are staff members. This is a chance to score some brownie points. Nobody said because of the pastor's sermons. And as I looked at the no, nobody said because of the music. Nobody said because of the programs. Nobody said because of the ministries that we have. Nobody said anything like that. Even the staff said essentially what you said. It's the people. It's the people. Now, folks, that is significant. You see, the heart of a church is the people who gather together to follow Christ. The heart of the church is the people who gather together to serve Christ. The heart of the church is the people who gather together to grow in Christ. And as we follow Christ together, what happens along the way truly is amazing. And so throughout the month of April, we're going to focus on why we love Mount Airy. Now, you may not know this, but Mount Airy Baptist Church has been around for a long time. In fact, our history goes all the way back to 1895. You may wonder why this old table is up here. Well, this old table is the original altar table in the original building of 1895. I'll tell you a quick story. I didn't tell the other service, but I'm going to tell the story because Peggy is here. Remember Scott Ferris when Scott was here not too long? He saw this in a connector, uh, an, an old, this old table and a chair, and he came to me and said, Pastor, can we throw away that old table and chair? It looks horrible. I said, Scott, you throw that away, and we both are going to have to have a resume ready. <laughs> because I explained to him what this, this was. Uh, so, <laughs> this altar table has been here for 119 years. For 119 years, our church has been a gospel witness to this community. Now, let me show you the picture they popped up there a minute ago. Here's a picture of the first pastor. This is the first pastor of Mount Airy Baptist Church. His name was Reverend Dwight Isidore Spearman. He served at Mount Airy Baptist Church on three different occasions as pastor. He served from 1895 to 1899, 1905 to 1908, and then came back again and served from 1910 to 1914. Our church started, I did a little research through my historian, Peggy Bagwell, and I jokingly told her today she's the only charter member we got left. 
<laughs> she took it really well. Our church started with 30 members in 1895. Mrs. William S. Murphy donated a four-acre plot of land that had a little building on it, and that became Mount Airy Baptist Church. Now, here's the reason all of that's important for you and me. None of us were here when that started, not even Peggy. None of us were here back then. Not one of us. Now, I want that to sink in for just a moment. None of us were here when this church started. And we are here to worship today because of somebody else's vision and somebody else's sacrifice and somebody else's service. You see, it's very easy for us to take for granted and to forget the history of our church. For 119 years, each generation of this church has benefited from the previous generation. Now, the church was a lot smaller back then, no doubt, but it was no less important. They were faithful with what they had, and they served God in their generation. Recently, uh, Steve Alter gave me a, a copy of a church, bull, or a church budget from 1965. They found it recently as they were going through some things, and, and uh, this church budget shows just how much church has changed over the years. For example... The proposed budget at Mount Airy Baptist Church, 1965, here's what they were going to spend on Vacation Bible School. They had a weekly column and a yearly column. Weekly for Vacation Bible School, $1. $52 for the year. The lights were going to cost $8 a week, $416 for the year. Telephone, $88.40 for the year. Nursery, $0.50 cents a week. They had three personnel back in 1965. I had a minister of music, a pastor, and a sexton. And I wasn't even sure what it was. I had to look it up. I thought I knew what it was, and, and I was right. I looked it up. A sexton was basically somebody who took care of the building and grounds, what we might call a, a janitor or something like that. And, and they kind of took care of everything in the church. And the sexton made $12.50 a week. The weekly total, what they needed to keep the church running. What they needed to take in every week, $347. The yearly total, the, the, the total of the entire budget for the year, $18,084. Now put that into perspective for you. Last Sunday in our offering, we collected $23,763. We took in more in one week than they had a budget for the entire year. Things have changed a little bit since then, haven't they? But listen to me. Think about this. One day, one day we're going to hand our baton off to somebody else, just like they did to us. One day, they're going to look back at our budget. They're going to look back at our pictures. They're going to look back at us. One day, we're going to hand the baton off to another generation. And they will worship in buildings that we paid for. And they will benefit from our vision and our sacrifice. And they will carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a new generation. You see, here's what I want you to understand today. The idea of the church is a really big idea. It is a really big deal. It's such a big deal that the history of our church goes back further than 1895. The church was actually launched 2,000 years ago. Not as a building, not as a denomination, not as an institution, but as a movement. 
2,000 years ago. And if you've been in church very long, you probably are going through your mind and say, okay, yeah, you're talking about uh, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost in Jerusalem. No. Talking about even before then. In reality, the history of our church goes back even further than Acts chapter 2. In reality, the history of our church goes back to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Because that is where Jesus, for the very first time in history, mentioned the idea of a church. Now this is Caesarea Philippi. We were there this past March when we toured Israel. Caesarea Philippi is a beautiful, beautiful place in the northern part of Israel. And there's this huge cliff there, and there used to be a temple built on this site. And you can see also a, a pagan temple, by the way. And you can see also the niches in, in the cliff. Now, you may have a hard time seeing that, so let me show you the next picture. You can see there a little better picture of the niches carved into the face of that cliff. That's where they would place their man-made idols. The god of Pan, little g god Pan was worshipped there, as well as many other gods. They would place their gods in those little niches. And we'll show you in the next picture, going back to it again. You can see some of the niches there now. And you can imagine the hundreds or perhaps thousands of people gathered there to worship a god that they made. One day, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus took his 12 disciples with him to this spot. And he took them there for a reason. He took them there to ask them a question. And the question is found in Matthew chapter 16. Would you open God's Word to Matthew chapter 16? Now, because I've been walking down memory lane this week, thinking back in the history of the church, I also walked down memory lane a little bit as, as your pastor. And for those of you who've been around since I've been here, You may recognize Matthew chapter 16, especially if you're one of those people, you write in Keith and the date that I preach a particular text. Because in July 1996, when I came to preach my trial sermon here, I preached this text, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus took his disciples to this spot with those man-made gods behind him. And he went there that day to ask them, A question. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now you need to understand, again, the background. What was probably behind him as he asked that question. This cliff with all these man-made gods in the niches. And people would talk about the God of Pan and this, this God and that God. And they all had different names. And as he stood there in front of that, he said, Guys, i got a question for you. And he, and he went there deliberately. He said, i got a question for you. Who do people say that I am? I know who they say these people are. I know what they say about these gods. Who do people say that I am? Look at the next verse. They replied, Well, you know, there's a lot of talk out there. What we've heard on the street is this. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The crowd had heard him teach, they had seen him heal, they had seen him do ministry, they had followed him from city to city, and the growing consensus was that Jesus was one of the prophets. Some said he was John the Baptist because the crowds followed him like they did John the Baptist. Some said that he was Elijah a forerunner to the Messiah because he had such a dramatic ministry. Some said, no, he must, be, uh, he must be Jeremiah because he speaks with such authority. He has a prophetic voice about him. 
So, so there's all kinds of opinions about who you are, they said. And Jesus then said, verse 15, I got another question for you. What about you? Who do you say that I am? This was a critical point in the discipleship process. They had followed him. They had watched him. They had listened to him. They had seen all the things that the crowds had seen. They had heard everything that the crowds had heard, but probably a little bit more. And so he says, okay, but now the question is not, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said what nobody else had ever said in history. And it must have felt even strange as it was coming out of his voice. Here's what Peter said. Here's how he uttered the words, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are not just a prophet. You are not just a popular teacher. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Nobody had ever said that before. Nobody had recognized that about Him. But Peter had that insight. And here's what Jesus said. And you don't see it with the ink on the page, but in in my mind's eye, I really believe that Jesus smiled when He said this next thing. Verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you were Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And for the first time, Jesus mentioned the church. Don't miss that. That, that needs to be one of those verses that are just marked in your Bible. The first reference to the church. That needs to be written in the column of your Bible. The first time in the Bible where the church is mentioned. Now, now please understand something. Jesus linked His uniqueness as the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He used that occasion to link His uniqueness as the Son of God to the beginning of the church. And I would say to you, the thing that makes the church today a unique group of people, the thing that makes us a unique group of people, ladies and gentlemen, is this. It is not our name, though we've got a good name in the community. It is not our buildings, though we've got beautiful buildings. It is not our programs or our music. It is not our pastor or our staff. The thing that makes us a unique group of people is this. We confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. That's what makes us different from other social clubs and different organizations and different groups of people. We dare to, co- to proclaim, we dare to confess, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the one who can change your life. He is the answer to the world's sin problem. If you agree with that, say amen. I'm going to tell you something. If you confess that to be true... And then treat the church's ministry with apathy. It is the worst form of hypocrisy. If you dare to say Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and that's who we are. We are His people and we proclaim that. And then you treat the ministry of the church with apathy. That is the worst form of hypocrisy. How can you do that? How can you do that? 
You say, well, well, Pastor, you see, I was serving and I was serving and I, served, and I just got burned out and, and, and I had to take a break. I understand that. I really do. I don't blame you. I support you. I understand when you served and served and served and sometimes you just need a break. I, I get that. But listen, that was 10 years ago. Don't you think the break is over? Don't you think it's time to kind of re-engage now? And some of you, you know, you used to come here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Whenever I was here, you were here. You were always here. And, and now? Now you're here on Sunday sometimes. You, 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 some of you, it appears you have this rotation. We see you about every other Sunday. There's another group, we see them about every other Sunday. And if every group ever got here at the same time, we wouldn't have room for all of you. You're here about every other Sunday unless it rains. You can't go to church when it's raining. Uh, you go to work, you go to school, but uh, that's another thing. Never mind. I'm not trying to fuss at you. I, I, but I am trying to help you understand something. The task we have been given should not be taken lightly. Should not be taken lightly. Here's the reason. You see, too much is at stake. Because what we are doing has eternal significance. And that's just not my idea. It's right here in verse 18. I tell you that you were Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, what, what he's wanting to do through the church, in the church, and through the church, has eternal significance. There's three statements in that promise that he makes in verse 18 that I want to call to your attention I want you to look at the screen and let me just kind of take it apart for you. The first promise, the first part of that promise that I want you to see is he says, I will build. This explains how the church has survived and thrived for over 2,000 years because the church growth is supernatural. We may provide the programming, we might organize the outreach, we might promote our activities, but it is God who provides the growth. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Paul explained the growth of the church at Corinth this way. He said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. From the very beginning, Jesus has always intended for His church to grow. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church. He's always intended for His church to grow, and church growth is a supernatural thing that He has promised. He will build the church, if we'll let Him. Then the second thing I want you to notice in that promise, he said, I will build my church. I would ask you to take your pen right now and underline those two words. Those are such key words in this verse. I will build my church. I just can't explain to you how important those two words are. But I'm going to try. Sometimes I've heard you say, and I'm glad you say this, so, so make sure you hear this. I'm glad you say this. Sometimes I hear you say, I love my church. And I've said that. I love my church or our church. And, and there are some people who have t-shirts that say, I love my church or I heart my church. I love my church too. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Please understand. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And I'm glad that you're saying that because I love my church too. But there is one thing I want to clarify for you. Jesus did not say, I will build the church. Jesus said in this text, I will build 
my church. Ladies and gentlemen, the church was bought and built on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remember, it is His church. It's okay to say, I love my church. It's okay to wear the t-shirt if you want to. But nobody's qualified to wear the t-shirt quite like Jesus is. What do you mean by that? Oh, listen to what he said in Ephesians 6.25. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That's how much He loves the church. You see, you'll never love it like He does. And, and I'm glad that you love it. And I hope that you'll say, I love my church. I hope you'll say, I love Mount Airy. But you'll never love it like Jesus does. He loves His church so much that He died for it. He loves it so much He prays for it. He loves it so much He's building it. He loves it so much one day He is returning for it. He loves His church. And that's why we must seek to build this church into what He wants it to be, not what we want it to be. You see, we'd rather sometimes make it my church. But listen to me, it is not your church. It is not my church. It's His church. I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's the third statement I want you to see. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know what that statement recognizes? Supernatural power enables the church to grow, and supernatural power will also try to hinder the church from growing. But Jesus said, but the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not be able to stop it. You see, the thing that Satan opposes most is when we get serious about winning people to Jesus, both locally and globally. But our Lord said, hell cannot prevail when I'm building the church. Ladies and gentlemen, please look at those three statements. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is saying, listen folks, you are on a mission. You are the instruments through whom I want to work to reach those who are far from God. And he talks about that in verse 19. Look what he said. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean? What are the keys? Well, can I ask you a question? What do keys do? Keys either lock somebody out or they let somebody in. And the keys that Jesus spoke of is the gospel. The good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The good news that Jesus is the answer to the, to the world's sin problem. And a little bit after this, Peter got to use the keys that Jesus put in his hand. And he opened the door of faith to 3,000 Jews who were in Jerusalem that day at Pentecost. Not too long after that, Paul got to use the keys that God placed in his hands. And he opened the door of faith to Gentiles throughout uh, the land outside of Palestine. He had the privilege of going from town to town and opening the door of faith for people because God had given him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. But ladies and gentlemen, we still have those keys in our hands too. We have the power to change the world and that's why we should not be indifferent about the task of reaching people. We don't reach people because it's nice. We reach out to people because of their eternal destiny is hanging in the balance. Evangelism is not an optional ministry of our church. Evangelism is the ministry of our church. Reaching people who are far from God. You see, the church is such a big deal. Jesus launched it 2,000 years ago. Not as a building, not as a denomination, not as an institution, but as a movement. 
I recently heard Andy Stanley say, the most important thing you can be a part of besides raising your family is the local church. It was here before you got here. It'll be here after you're gone. That's a pretty powerful statement. I agree with him. Outside of your family, the most important thing you can be a part of is a church. Mount Airy Baptist Church was here before I got here. It'll be here after I'm gone. Mount Airy Baptist Church was here before you got here. It will be here after you're gone. Because Jesus is part of this church. And He's building this church. I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Because I hope somebody is going to grab hold of this. And understand the importance of this congregation. I want to make sure you're listening to me. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go to Wofford. My son runs for Anderson Track, uh, Anderson University Track, and they had a meet at Wofford. He ran four races yesterday. The last race was probably the most exciting. He did good in all of them, uh, but uh, the last race was, was really exciting. And first time he'd run the four by four hundred meter relay is, is the race, the last race of the day, the men's four by four hundred meter relay. In case you're not a track person, let me explain to you what that race is. The 4 by 400 meter relay means that you run a one solid lap around the track carrying the baton and then you hand it off to somebody else and, and he or she runs another lap and then a third lap you hand it off and then the fourth lap is the final lap. So you're going around the track four times, four people going around the track one lap at a time. Jonathan was in the 4 by 400 meter relay and he ran his lap and he did good, did really good. And he ran his lap. And then I noticed he kind of went off to the side there to the infield and his race was over. Now the race was still going, but his lap was done. I started thinking about that last night. I thought, isn't that just like life and isn't that just like our church? Right now we are running our lap. One day our lap is going to be over. I've been running my lap here as your pastor for 17 and a half years. I'm a really slow runner. <laughs> but one day, my lap is going to be over. One day, your lap is going to be over. But the race will keep going. And I noticed something about how they would come to the end when they would hand the baton off. And I watched several races, the, uh, the 4 by 400 meter relay, and every one of them was the same way. Not one time did I see anybody walking towards the finish line to hand the baton to somebody else. Not one time did I see somebody just kind of skipping towards the finish line to hand it to somebody else. Not one time did I see anybody just kind of lollygagging towards the finish line to hand it to somebody else. In every race, I saw the same thing. They were running with everything that they had to get to the finish line in order to hand it off to the next person. And that's the way I want to run. I want to run to the end of my lap with everything that I've got, running as hard as I can go. I don't want to coast. I don't, who wants to coast through this life? I don't want to coast. I want to run as hard as I can run to the end of my lap before I hand it off to somebody else. I want our church to run as hard as we can run to the end of our lap before we hand it off to another generation. Other generations have run in front of us. They have handed it to another generation and another generation and eventually they handed it to us. And we need to run as hard as we can to get to the end 
running to the end as hard as we can to hand it off to them. See, here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want to get to the end of my lap and look back and say, you know, I could have run a better race. I, I, I could have run a better lap. I don't want our church to get the end of our race, the end of our lap and say, we could have run a better race. You only get one lap, and you're in it right now. The race will still be going after your life is over. You're in your lap right now. I want to close by telling you two quick stories. Don't put anything away. Don't get ready to leave. I've I got two stories for you. Just want to let you know that I'm coming to an end. I'm going to land the plane, all right? I want to tell you two quick stories. They both happened this week. A, a, a pastor friend of, of ours was talking to Lisa this week, and I don't want to name him or tell the church or anything, but he was telling her that, that he, he was associate pastor. He and the pastor resigned recently from the church. church had a split. Both pastors resigned. Most of the people went with the pastor to start another church. There were 55 people left in the church were split. And on the Sunday after the split, somebody, some man got up in the pulpit, and here's what he said to the church, who only had 55 people left. He got up that Sunday morning, and here's what he said. I'll tell you right now, we're going to take this church back to the way it was in the 1970s. He said that from the pulpit. I tell you right now, we're going to take this church back to the 1970s. You know what he was saying? This is my church. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it is not. The church was built and bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is his church. His church. We lose sight of that too often. See, here's a little statement I want you to understand. The church is not mine. It is His. And that's the way I like it. Church is not mine. It is His. And that's the way I like it. That's the first story. Here's the second story. Thursday night, we were sitting at the kitchen table, Lisa, myself, and Lauren... And we were just talking about this series coming up. And, and Lauren said something that just, just so blessed me. You, but let, let me tell you, set it up for you before I tell you what she said. My kids grew up in this church. You, you see, when I first came here 17 and a half years ago, my kids were really, really small. And so they grew up in this church. And part of what I love about Mount Airy so much is the love of God that they received at Mount Airy. My daughter, Lauren, is now on staff at Marathon Church. She's media director over there at Marathon. That's why you haven't seen her. Some of you wonder, where is the preacher's kids? Well, she's working in another church at Marathon. But she was sitting at the kitchen table uh, Thursday night as we were talking about this series. And she just made a very simple statement. But she said it so genuinely. She said, I love Mount Airy. 
I love Mount Airy. I had to, had to hold it together. But here's why that statement was so important to me. You see, as the preacher's kid, you see the church differently than most people see it. As a preacher's kid, you have a whole different perspective than other people have. And as a preacher's kid, you see the preacher differently too. And in spite of that, Lauren, thinking back over our 17 and a half years here, she summarized it just by saying, I love Mount Airy. Listen to me. That's what you want your kids to say, isn't it? That's what you want your grandkids to say. You want them to say, I love Mount Airy. If your kids are going to say that, if your grandkids are going to say that, they're going to have to see that in your life, church is more than just a place you attend occasionally on Sunday morning. They're going to have to see you plugged in here and serving God here and loving God here and working here and giving here. And, and they're going to have to see that this means something, that this means something to you, that this place can make a difference in the world. They're going to have to see that you're running as hard as you can run so that you can hand the baton off at the end of your lap to another generation. They're going to have to see that Mount Airy means something to you before it ever means something to them. I gave you a couple of months ago invite cards where a very simple strategy where you put the names of two or three people there that you're praying for every day. Pray for them every day. Talk to them when you get the opportunity and invite them to church. And I just want, I'm not going to ask you, don't raise your hand. I just wonder, do you even know where your card is? Are you praying for them? Are you using that simple strategy? My church is not really mine. And that's why I love it. I love being part of what God is doing through us to reach people who are far from Him. My church is not really mine. And that's why I love it. It's His. For 119 years, for 119 years, it's been His church. Let's keep it that way. Let's run as hard as we can in our lap before another generation takes the baton from us. I will build my church, Jesus said. We just got to run as hard as we can to serve Him in the meantime. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Mount Air Baptist Church for what it means to me. I thank You and praise You, Lord, for just working in our church and through our church over the years and the joys that we've seen, the experiences that we've had, for the blessing it has been to my family. And now, Lord, will you continue to do an amazing work here and may it be a God thing. And then may we all recognize that. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.